If you happen to have a Bible with you this morning, how about if you open it up to Acts chapter 28? If you don't have one with you, you're going to find them in the racks around you so that you can follow along that way, or you can watch up on the screen. You'll see the passages up there as well. Um, we're going to be a little bit shorter this morning. I actually asked Michael to teach or to lead worship a little bit shorter, just two songs, and I'm going to teach a little bit shorter um, because we want to allow some time at the very end of the service for questions related to the the letter that some of you might have received that um, came out this last week in regards to the property that we've been looking at up on M78. If you're not familiar with what I'm talking about, I'll explain that a little bit more later, but there's some property over on Saginaw Highway that we've been exploring for the purpose of expanding the church. But we'll come back to that in a little bit at the, at the end of the teaching. So we're in Acts 28. We're going to pick up where we left off at last week. Just a question for you. Um, when you study Acts and, and you look at the activities of the apostles and you see you know, the behaviors of Peter and, and John and Matthew and Paul, for instance, we're going to look at this morning, is there a sense of intimidation when you read about those guys? Yeah, you can identify with that. A few of you are bold enough to put your hands up about that. that, that, that I feel that. When you look at it, it's like, wow, I, how do you get that kind of boldness? How do you get wired for that? Like I could ever measure up to that. Well, here's something we need to remind ourselves in regards to that thought. Recognize that these individuals that you're watching are on a growth curve, right? They're coming to a place where they're understanding more and more and more of who Jesus is. They didn't suddenly become bold. You and I don't suddenly become bold. It's not like we're preloaded with some software and all we have to do is hit a switch and all of a sudden, hey, I'm this bold guy. I, I get to do these things for Jesus. No, these individuals, they increased in their capacity. So what you saw from Paul on the road to Damascus versus the Paul that we're going to look at this morning, they, he had really increased in his understanding of God's claim on his life. And here's an important component of that. Because they're willing because they're willing to be intentional towards the activity of God in their community and in their own life, they got to experience a power of God working through them that most people never experience. That's why we read about them and we're left with like, wow, how do you get to that place? My great desire for our growing church is that each of us, myself included, would come to this place where every week we encounter God in a fresh way, and in the midst of that encounter, we will really grasp his power toward us. That's a verse that I used with you last week, Ephesians 1.18, in which Paul was praying for the church that it would understand God's power toward us who believe. Let me remind you of that verse because it kind of anchors where we're going this morning. Look with me on the screen at Ephesians 1.18. It says this, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. And Paul says, here's why. So that you may know, know what? What is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? God has great power toward you. Did you know that? Not just his power to save you, but his power to work through you while you're here on planet Earth. So we, we don't just get our golden ticket stamped and plugged and we're ready for heaven. We get to do things here on planet Earth. Great power to save us, but also great power to work through us here on this planet. Now, many people come to the conclusion of, I, I'm not sure I can ever get to that point. I'm not even sure I even see God working through me right now. I want to ask you to check yourself this morning. 
If you look in your bulletin, you're going to see the notes that we prepared. And on the right-hand side of the notes are four bullet point questions that you can ask yourself. Here's a thought. It's very likely that God is doing way more in your life than you realize. Maybe you just never have been taught how to recognize what the work of God looks like in your life. So let me take you through these four really kind of elementary level questions and ask yourself these things. I asked this a year ago of you when we started the study of the book of Acts, and I thought it's appropriate we come to the end of the study of the book of Acts that we look at that again. First of all, ask yourself this question. Does the Bible make more sense to you than ever before? And I'm talking about maybe more than a year ago, maybe more than five years ago. Just a quick show of hands. Is God's word making more sense to you? Okay, that's the work of the Holy Spirit Church. That's not a human teacher doing that. God may use human teachers and the skill that he's given us, but we're told very clearly it's the Holy Spirit who is the teacher. And so what you're seeing in your life that God's word is making more sense to you, that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one. Do you have a deeper desire to understand the things of God? Do you have a deeper desire to spend time in his word? Here's another one. Have you seen the spirit of praise at work in your life, filling your life with a greater degree of desire to worship who Jesus is. See, these are all the things that are the work of the Holy Spirit. That Satan wouldn't do that. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Here's a big one. Have you seen the spirit of obedience at work, subduing sin? And I don't mean that you've conquered all the things that you want to conquer. I mean that you feel a greater degree of conviction over the things that perhaps in the past you might have just ignored and slid over. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. So maybe God's doing more in your life than you even realize, and you're on the same growth curve just like you see the disciples doing. So if you're a believer this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus, and you find these things are not true of you presently, maybe even you're feeling a little bit stagnant in your walk with Jesus, perhaps you need to do what I do and what many godly men that I know do. Many theologians that you see on the screen when I put quotes up there had to do the same thing. Maybe you have to come to the place where you need to say to God, I want want to see your power in my life, God. And you can pray that way. God, I just want to see more of you in my life. And it may be that if you're feeling God's power blocked in your life, maybe there's a sin issue and you need to do what King David did. King David got on his knees and said to God the Father, Will you examine my heart and see if there's any wicked way in me? See if there's something I'm not even noticing myself convict me of the things that I'm doing? Maybe you need to start there. So before we go into Acts 28, verse 1, let me ask you to do this. Just offer up a one-sentence prayer to God right now and just say, God, I'd like to see more of your power in my life. Would you do that? Just close your eyes and do that. Father, I echo that for the for the greater good of this entire church, that we would see more of you. More of you, God. More and more and more. To the degree that we can say what Paul said, that we press on, we press on so hard that we're trying to reach toward the high calling of Christ in our life. God, that we would never be satisfied and that we would never settle and be comfortable with being stagnant. I pray for this body that is joined together right now to study your word, that you would take us to a place where we have a fresh encounter with you just by working through your word. 
Leave us with a sense of awe, Father. God, I ask for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. So let's go into Acts 28, verse 1, where we left off at last week is Paul's on the island of Malta. They got shipwrecked, right, where we left them off last week. There were 276 people that made it off the ship. They made it onto shore. They all reached shore safely. The ship was destroyed in the surf. They had to abandon ship, and they made it through the surf onto the shore, and that's where verse 1 picks up. When they had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness, for because of the rain that had set in and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all. You know there's cold and then there's wet cold, right? If you've ever been wet cold, you know exactly what I'm talking about. My cousins and myself went fishing. I was 20 years old, and we were fishing in the Pier Marquette River north of Ludington, and it was January, so we are steelhead fishing, and it was four degrees below zero. And we're each wearing our waders, and we're in a canoe working our way downstream. We beach the canoe, and we're working our way out into the stream to different trout holes. And I inadvertently didn't see a stump that was in the bottom of the river and hooked my foot under it. And the current of the river kept pushing me down, even though my foot was stuck under the stump. And pretty soon, my waders are filling up with water, and I'm going, because <gasps> you can feel that temperature water, right? And all of a sudden, I'm completely submerged, and my head is bouncing off the bottom of the river. Well, I'm able to unhook my foot, but when I came back up out of the water, it felt like a thousand needles piercing through my body. There's cold, and then there's wet cold, and it's horrible. Well, my cousins gratefully build a fire for me immediately on the shore. In the meantime, they're laughing at me like, I can't believe you just did that. Found it really, really humorous. But that, that experience that these individuals are going through, I totally understand that. They're on this island of Malta. It's November and they're not only wet, they're cold. And we're told these natives shown them extraordinary kindness. Now, natives doesn't mean they're primitive. In the Bible, the word native, the way that's used here, maybe in your translation it says barbarian. Um, the word barbarous is what's used in the Greek language, and it literally means someone who doesn't speak the Greek language. So Greek was considered the, the language of the elites or the social upper class. If you didn't speak that, you were considered a barbarian. Well, that's what these individuals are. They're individuals who don't speak the language of the elites, but they do show extraordinary kindness. Dr. Luke's saying they went beyond expectations. Why would he write it that way? Well, first of all, they had to build a huge fire, 276 people to gather around it. That's a monster bonfire. But also, commonly in the first century, if you were on a ship and the ship was shipwrecked and you ended up on some deserted island, the people of the island many times put those individuals into slavery because they'd lost everything at sea. They had no possessions. There's no way to phone home. Who's going to come rescue you? So many times individuals ended up in slavery. So they're showing them not slavery. They're showing them kindness. These individuals who are soaked from their desperate attempt to get to shore, and they're chilled by these November winds, and they get a nice fire. Now, I want you to go into verse 3 with me with a thought of what we talked about last week, how we can see God in the midst of storms in our life. And I want you to see God's mercy in a storm that's about to happen to Paul. And I'll go one step further. There's, there's a storm that's coming that shows God's mercy in which Paul is bitten by a snake. And you're going to think, Mark, what have you been smoking? How can that be a good thing? How can God use that? I, I want to show you how God uses this storm in Paul's life. Go with me to verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out, 
because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. Now, in that moment, my wife would be totally freaking out. I'm here to tell you, right? I don't know if it leans back into the Garden of Eden thing and women with snakes and kind of that fear thing, but Lori can see a dead snake on the side of the road and get absolutely squeamish, let alone one that's trying to make a snack out of your hand. So that's what Paul's got. This one has fastened himself onto Paul's hand. And you have to love his heart when you're looking at this story because you've got this aged, weathered man and you see a measure of Paul's character that he's performing the lowest task. 276 young studs walking around on the island, and Paul's the guy picking up sticks and throwing them on the fire. He doesn't hesitate to assist. That's because no task is too small for the followers of Jesus, right, church? Philippians 2, he who was rich became poor for our sake. Paul's modeling that. He picks up this bundle, he gathers it together, he lays it on the fire, and unfortunately, one of the sticks is alive. So he throws the sticks on the fire and the snake is shocked out of hibernation. It uncoils, it's fixing itself to Paul's hand. This is not a gardener snake, right? We understand that for the word that's used here, uh, you have one Greek word in your notes this morning. It's this word echidna, an adner or a poisonous viper. How do we know it's actually poisonous? Well, a couple of things that we've, we see here. First of all, Dr. Luke would not make a mistake about a deadly snake versus a non-deadly snake. We also see in um, Sir William Mitchell Ramsey's notes from 1895 when he was studying this, it, he gave us an insight into first century medicine. Look with me at the quote on the screen. He said, a trained man of medicine was an authority about serpents to which great respect was paid in ancient medicine. Well, those are all good, but the most convincing proof that this is a deadly snake is the reaction of the islanders because they expect Paul to swell up and die. Go with me to the next verse, verse 4. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, undoubtedly this man is a murderer. And though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. What's really clear in this passage is there's two things going on. The perception of the natives cause us to see these two really significant issues, one even bigger than the other. Because they're the natives of the island, they know their own species, and they know a deadly snake from a non-deadly one. They expect Paul to die. But there's something much bigger going on here, something much, much bigger the mere presence of the Roman guards, along with these individuals who've made it through the sea, have caused the natives to reason something. And you see it in verse four. Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. They're thinking he's a serious criminal. Not just a criminal, a serious criminal. So when they see the viper, it's a sure sign Paul is a fugitive from justice, and justice has finally caught up with him. So although he's been saved from the sea, justice will not allow him to live. In the first century, the Greeks actually had a name for justice. They, they considered it a goddess. The goddess was not just, a, a, the justice was not just an action, but it was an entity. So they used that term here, decay. This decay will not allow him to live. What do we see going on? the islanders have a really clear sense of right and wrong. They're showing us something here in 2016. They're showing us that they have the work of the law written on their heart. It's an echo of Romans chapter two. They know right from wrong. Even natives on a remote island have a sense of justice. 
Why do I point that out? Because every culture, no matter how remote, even in the jungles of the Amazon, completely removed from modern society, have a sense of right and wrong. It's a universal deal. It's one aspect of how you and I grasp what's called general revelation, how God reveals himself. Let me take you to Scripture to help you see that a little bit more clearly from Romans chapter 2. Look with me on the screen, Romans 2.14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having the law are a law to themselves in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. So because God reveals himself in this way, it means everyone in humanity, everyone born on planet Earth, stands before God without an excuse because there's even a moral law written on our hearts. So scripture goes one step further. Romans 2.1 says this, you are without excuse, every man of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. So that's telling us God can rightly judge those who have never heard the gospel. Because of this moral law, he's written on our heart. And we impose, impose that same moral law on others. Why is that so important? Because it relates directly to this story. As you move forward, you've got some islanders who have no knowledge of Jesus Christ. They have no knowledge of the one true God, and yet we see that they have a moral law written on their hearts. So let's watch how this applies to this story. Go with me to verse 5. However, he, meaning Paul, shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Now, Dr. Luke's not saying the snake suffered no harm, right? The snake becomes crispy at that point. Paul suffered no harm, but there's no panic on his part. There's no horror. Verse 6 but they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. So they waited a really long time for the venom to take effect, right? And then they began drawing the opposite conclusion. He's no murderer, he's a god. What do we see going on? God uses these situations, these storms that come along our way to authenticate his message. I submit to you this morning that there's a design in the storms that you might be going through right now. Job loss you didn't see coming? Storm? How are you going to use that to bring glory and attention to God? Relationship breaking apart that you didn't anticipate? Is that a storm coming into your life that God is saying, you can use this, you can use this to point people towards me? Is there an illness that's come into your life? Is, is there a storm like that that's causing you and others who are watching you to awaken to the capacity that we have to reason with the truth of the gospel? Think it through this way. Paul is a prisoner. There's no reason for any of the natives on the island to pay any attention to him. He's just another of the 276 people who have escaped a shipwreck, who have made it desperately to the shore and is freezing cold trying to recover around the fire. There's no reason to give him any attention until this storm comes his way in the form of a viper biting onto his hand. And by this miracle of God allowing him to live, attention is instantly fixed on Paul. And what's just happened? A door is now opened. A way for communication is made really, really clear. Paul's the guy they're going to want to listen to. Who is this guy? What's going on in his life? 
Now what we see going on is obviously the pendulum is swinging too far. He's a murderer. No, he's a god. Well, that's common of humanity. Paul will bring them back to center. We understand they have no knowledge of the one true God, meaning no knowledge of his capacity to rescue, no knowledge of his ability to save. We've already said there is a propensity in humans to jump to judgment, to draw conclusions. So these individuals on the island are no different. They've got a knowledge of judgment. They've got a knowledge that a judgment is coming. It's something that you and I are hardwired for. So catch this. The storm that God just brought into Paul's life is now going to give him the opportunity to point them to the one true God, to a group of people who are very, very far from him. Move back into the story with me. We find in verse 7 it says this. Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Pablius, who welcomed us and entertained us courteously three days. A leading man of the island simply means he's the governor. Rome put individuals in place in certain regions that they ruled over, and they put this man, Pablius, on this island as the governor. And we find him hosting Paul and Paul's friends in his own home, even though his own daddy is really, really sick. Go with me to the next verse, verse 8. And it happened that the father of Pablius was lying in bed, afflicted with recurrent fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him. And after he prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. Now, this recurrent fever that Scripture is talking about here, there's this gastric fever that was common on the island of Malta, and it was caused by microbes in the goat's milk. Matter of fact, it was so well known among the people of the ancient world that they actually called it Malta fever from individuals who were drinking the goat's milk that was contaminated. It's got this microbes in it, and they get really, really sick. Well, this guy doesn't only have that. He's got dysentery. Why? Well, we'll just say in the first century there's no flushing toilets, okay? So you just let your mind go wherever you want, but it's kind of dirty. And so we've got this individual who's pretty sick, and we see Paul going into him. And in verse 8, what's the first thing you see him doing, church? A little louder. Pray, yeah. That is really, really significant, incredibly significant. Because Paul recognizes what's required here is God's power. Ephesians 1, God's power toward us who believe. See, this is a really explicit way. Paul's putting a billboard out there, letting everybody know God, the one true God, the God who just saved me from the snake, this God has to answer this situation. If he doesn't, there's nothing that I can do. It's got to be God's power working through me. So in this case, God authenticates his message and he heals the man. Do you see what's happening here? The whole island, people who are very far from God are getting to know the God of wonders. From the shipwreck to the bite of a viper to the sick man on a bed, God's allowing Paul to go through these storms so that he can evidence himself to individuals who otherwise would not hear about this God. Go with me to verse 9. After this had happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and getting cured. That's not too surprising, right? You hear about somebody that can do that, you're going to go find him. So you've been in the study of Acts for quite a while, and now let's just think about the nature and character of Paul. Do you think 
it's reasonable to assume that Paul would be the guy that would begin telling these individuals who are coming for healing what the source of his power is. Yeah, there's more than four of you here, okay? Yeah, okay, we agree with that. Do you think Paul is the guy that's gonna begin sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those people? Yeah, okay. You get to see the outworking of that when you go to verse 10. There's something going on here. Remember the purpose of miracles is always, always, always to authenticate the truth of who Jesus is, authenticating God's message. Here's an interesting detail before we go into the next verse. You can't find this in the Bible. This is extra biblical history to tradition. Tradition says that this is the moment in time when the church in Malta launched and the very first pastor of the church in Malta is known as Governor Publius, first pastor of the church that launches at this moment. You can go back and read about it in history yourself. It's really quite fascinating. So let's go to verse 10. Verse 10 says this, they also honored us with many marks of respect and when we were setting sail, they supplied us with all we needed at the end of three months, we set sail on an Alexandrian ship, which had wintered at the island and, and, and which had the twin brothers for its figurehead. So it sure looks like to me that there's been a great awakening on Malta of some type. There's this huge outpouring of love towards Paul and Timothy and Dr. Luke and Aristarchus, these individuals who are together with Dr. Luke and with Paul. Can we just assume here that some of the islanders received the gospel of Jesus? I think it's very safe to say that in this moment. So they spend three months together on this island with Paul. And then winter is over. And the raging seas calm down. And finally, they're able to leave. So Julius the centurion, he arranges transport for them on an Alexandrian ship, another grain carrier like we looked at last week. And they set sail for Sicily. Go with me to verse 12. After we put in at Syracuse, which was a city on the island of Sicily, just outside of Italy, we stayed there for three days. From there, we sailed around and arrived at Regium. And a day later, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Patoli. Now, if you're a good Italian, you're going to say Patoli, right? That's an Italian city, a very big port, a seaport, a city that was quite large for its day. It's still quite large today, a city of 100,000 people. Well, because it's so large, you would expect you're probably going to find some Christians there. That's what verse 14 says. There we found some brethren and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And thus we came to Rome. What an incredibly dramatic understatement on Dr. Luke's part. We've been looking at this guy for months and now we find four words. We came to Rome, right? Long, grueling journey and that's all we get. Well, verse 15 and verse 16 are in a kind of regressive what Dr. Luke helps us to understand is that word is on the street. People are beginning to hear, Paul's coming. This guy they've heard about, this guy they've read about, he's coming to our city, verse 15. And the brethren, when they heard about us, came from there, meaning Rome, as far as the market of Appius and three inns to meet us. And when Paul saw them, he thanked God and took courage. I want to come back to those last two words in just a minute. Two words in the English language, which is one word in the Greek language, tharsos. We've got this route to Rome, which took them about five days on foot, about 130 miles. You grew up in school. You went through high school training systems. You probably have heard of the Appian Way. 
Well, that's where they're at. They're on the Appian Way, and they find themselves 43 miles south of Rome, and they come into this little bit of a town called the Market of Appius. It's not known for anything other than a bunch of taverns, and, and historians write about it that it was full of stingy tavern owners. Whatever that means, I don't know. But in that town, a bunch of believers meet Paul, who have just come from Rome. And then they make their way further and they come to another town and a second group meets them at another place called Three Taverns. Sounds like there's a lot of drinking in the first century, doesn't it? Okay, so you got these towns full of taverns, but what you've got are Christians who have come from Rome and they heard Paul's coming and they intercept him. And we come into this really emotion-packed statement by Dr. Luke. I think it's deeply emotional because Paul is moved by their love for him. And we're told that he leads this group in prayer. He thanks God and he takes courage in this moment. I don't often quote the the paraphrased version of the Bible called the message, but I wanted you to see this particular verse on the screen because I I think the writer captured it well. Look at verse 15 on the screen. He said, these were emotion-packed meetings, as you can well imagine. Paul, brimming over with praise, led us in prayers of thanksgiving. Why? Just because he met a bunch of people on the road? Think about what we've learned, church. He's just overcome angry mobs who wanted to rip him limb from limb in Jerusalem. Individuals who wanted Paul dead. Endless legal proceedings. Two years in prison. The fury of the sea and the shipwreck on the island. Not to mention the snake that we just saw bite him. Does he have reason to thank God in the midst of the storms? He's just gone through some really, really hard times, and yet God proved himself faithful, even though Paul had to go through the hard times. He got to point people to Jesus Christ. So we see him thanking God, and we're told he uses this word. We're told he takes courage. It's the word tharsos I mentioned just a minute ago. The word tharsos, as it's properly translated, actually means boldness. So Paul has lived through storms in his life in which he has seen the power of God towards those of us who believe. He's lived it, and he's beginning to draw boldness, thanking God for what God is evidencing by the believers who have come from Rome to greet him. In other words, spreading an open door saying, we really want you to come into our city. And he's drawing boldness by remembering the way that God has been powerful in the past. Do you think Paul believes that God will be powerful in the future? Absolutely. And so we see him drawing boldness because we understand, according to history, he's going to stand before Caesar Nero. This is 60, 62 AD. By 68, maybe 67 AD, Paul is dead. He's been decapitated by Caesar. He's going to need boldness in the midst of what's ahead of him. Some really, really hard times, but some powerful opportunities to witness So verse 16 is kind of anticlimactic, but this is the way it ends. When we entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who was guarding him. That soldier is most likely chained to Paul's wrist. Soldiers were changed out every six hours in the Roman Empire. Paul is probably living 24 hours a day with a soldier chained to him. So he's still under custody, but he's given some great degree of liberty because he's free to bear witness. He gets to talk to people as we're going to close out the book of Acts with next week about who Jesus Christ is. So he's free to bear witness, but it's a witness in chains. 
Catch this thought as we wrap this up. These scenarios that you might be going through right now, these storms that have come into your life, are no different than the storms that have come into Paul's life. Every storm that we've seen him go through and we've seen the other disciples, the apostles going through, they're continually represented in the Bible as being allowed by God for one end and one end alone. Acts 1.8, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost part of the earth. So Jesus doesn't promise the rose garden. What he promises is salvation, and he promises his power to work through us in the midst of these storms. So every single storm that comes into your life, no matter how putrid it may smell to you, no matter how hard it may be to go through, if you follow Jesus Christ, if you are one of those who belong to him, if you love God, he says those things that are happening in your life, I allow those to work for good. You might be thinking, Mark, can you back that up? I can. I can back that up with Scripture. Let let me take you to the screen. Romans 8. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Not some things, right, church? All things. God causes all things to work together for good. To who? To those who love God. To those who are called according to his purpose. That, that helps me, I hope that helps you in the midst of your walk to understand God's got a purpose in the storm you're going through, but it leaves me hanging a little bit short. Personally, just being an American guy, I'd like to know that there's more than that. I'd like to know that there's more than just the purpose because I like more than just ethereal things. I'd like to understand, okay, what is this leading to? Well, I'm not gonna end with Romans 8, 28. I'm gonna end with 2 Corinthians 4, 17. Look, look at the words. For momentary light affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. Who wrote 2 Corinthians, church? Paul. He calls these things that he's gone through momentary light afflictions. They don't feel so light to me, but he's willing to put it in perspective because there's a a weight of glory far beyond all comparison waiting for us. I can imagine some pretty amazing things. God says, I've prepared things for you you can't even begin to imagine. How good is our God? He encourages us even in the midst of the storm to say, in the midst of the storm, I can use this to advance my kingdom. I'm gonna pray for us that way as we wrap it up. Would you join me in that? Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ, those who have willingly taken this time to study your word, and for those who might be here who are not believers yet, and they're just trying to examine this and understand, is this real or not? God, I ask that right now you'd be especially close to those who are believers that are going through storms that can't see how this could possibly work out to anything good. That in the midst of it, you say that if, if we love you and we belong to you, you will use these things for good. And we know you can't lie. So we hang on to that. We cling to that promise, Father. I pray in the midst of this week coming ahead, we don't know what it holds, you do, that you would remind us that these things that we're going through, they're they're just temporary. They're momentary. But what's waiting for us is a preparation that you've made that is beyond our understanding. Give us strength and courage in the midst of that, Father. We pray for this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.